Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the Logistics Executive Group Vodcast Series. I'm your host, Kim Winter, Global CEO of Logistics Executive Group. We're continuing on the COVID series and its impacts on various elements of, uh, of industry and the supply chain, logistics in particular. And I'm joined today uh, again by uh, Daryl Judd. Daryl's the MD for Corporate Advisory, Mergers and Acquisitions with our group for the last 20 years. Daryl, thanks for joining me. Uh, and it's great to have you on board. Good morning, Kim. Thanks very much. It's nice to be here again and uh, you know, working from home once again. We I know that was the topic of last week's discussion, remote working, but here we still are after another week gone by. Good one. So just want to treat, have a treatment today of, of manufacturing and the supply chain and, and some of the uh, some inputs from you and some insights around what's happened and, and what the impacts have been on uh, manufacturing and how those are affecting uh, the rest of us. Um, maybe we kick off by, you know, what impacts you're seeing. There's been a lot said, there's a lot on the media, uh, written TV about um, supply chain blockages, massive uh, delays in supply chain, pivoting of supply chains, pivoting and manufacturing to, to meet the needs of governments and organisations throughout this pretty uh, horrendous period that we've all been going through. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what the major shifts that you're seeing and then I'll uh, hit you with a few other questions as we go through. Hasn't it been just, I mean, the most amazing five or six weeks when we look back at what our manufacturing and supply chains uh, have gone through and are still continue to go through? And uh, you know, for me, it's phenomenal to see just how resilient um, these supply chains have been under extraordinary circumstances. Um, Somewhere along the line, our, our grocery shelves are still relatively full, our supplies are relatively intact, and although we may not have all of the brand luxury that we had you know, 10 weeks ago, we certainly have been able to see manufacturing respond um, in, in some phenomenal, phenomenal fashion just to allow us to continue our everyday life. But I don't think it's any secret that you know, we read some of the stories and we see the pressure points in manufacturing that uh, there'll be some major shifts and changes in our manufacturing and supply chain environments post-COVID-19. And you know, if history teaches us anything, it's that these short-term measures that manufacturers have had to adopt and put in place uh, in order to address their response to this global crisis will probably lead to changes in our manufacturing supply chains for decades to come. Um, and, you know, we can look back on every major crisis that's occurred in the last 50 years. Um, you know, the rise of the, the military industrialization that happened post-World War II um, and, and the financial investments made in, uh, in industrial manufacturing after that period uh, and how that changed a lot of the, the way we did things. Uh, the financial crisis of 08 to 010, the way that shifted globalization of our supply chains, um, you know, the response after post-September 11 to uh, travel, security, um, cyber security in particular, surveillance, um, all those things have had lasting impacts as we've emerged from those crises, and I think COVID-19 will be the same. Okay, thanks for that. Uh... Good one. So, 
many years now, of course, automation has been um, high on the agenda for manufacturing and supply chain. Um, it's, there's been massive changes in automation. Uh, have we seen any advantages to the type of automation developments that we've seen in recent years take place and come to the fore during this pandemic period that we've been in the last few months? Um, have, you seen, have you seen any evidence of, of competitive advantage through automation um, uh, during this time? Yeah, well, I think one of the interesting things we can look back at, if we look back at this globalization that took place 10, 12, 15 years ago in our manufacturing, we had a, a major shift towards outsourcing of our, uh, of our manufacturing processes. And, and primarily that was from more developed nations where there was a significant cost increase that wasn't offset by the investment in robotics and automation of our domestic manufacturing. We moved those to offshore environments where almost we had a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of driving down our, our costs of labor. Uh, so in other words, cheap, cheap, cheaper labor environments um, and you know, more efficiency driven through that channel. I think what this will see, what we'll see coming out of COVID-19 is possibly the revival of the automated domestic manufacturer again. I think there's a couple of things behind that. Uh, I think one of the things that we've learned from 19 is the old adage of all the eggs in one basket and the risk that presents should that basket be in any way shaped or locked down uh, as it has been with, with this pandemic. Um, and I think that's one of the things that you know manufacturers have had to look and will have to look carefully at. I know this has been an unexpected and unprecedented uh, set of circumstances, but that you know for the first time in manufacturing for a very long time, if not ever, we've seen three major things impact manufacturing all at the same time. Number one was we saw a real demand challenge in our businesses. We've seen a major supply chain challenge in our business. And of course, we've also seen the, the, the impact of workforce availability or lack of it through, through the lockdown affect us. But it didn't just affect us in one region as in how other crises have affected us, it's affected us globally. And so for, for that unprecedented set of circumstances, manufacturers will be looking very, very carefully now about having all their eggs in one basket. Um, now, nearshoring, uh, you touched on nearshoring a moment ago, uh, as costs in China and other low-cost manufacturing parts of the world started to rise, companies more and more chose to nearshore parts of their manufacturing back closer to their markets. Um, we saw the emergence of Latin America as a supply basin for the US, for example. But you know, the challenge there was, we never really saw that decoupling of the eco-supply system. Um, and so the eco-supply system largely still remain in these key manufacturing pockets of China and India. Um, so I think going forward, they will be two elements that will start to shift in our manufacturing. I think we'll see a decoupling of those ecosystems and we'll see not just the nearshoring trends emerge, but we'll actually see those ecosystems duplicated or relocated elsewhere to provide greater contingency uh, for events such as this one we've had now where we have a complete shutdown of demand, supply and our workforce availability. But, catastrophically affects our supply chain. Mm. Mm. Hey, good uh, one. Okay. It's interesting you talk about the, the automation and digitization element. I mean, 
you know, for many organizations, robotics is a very expensive investment. Uh, you need to retool. Does affect your labor, so therefore that was going to create you know redundancies and therefore uh, geopolitical pressure on on workers um, that governments didn't you know, take a liking to. And so offshoring was the easiest way to get around that. Um, I think now we'll start to see governments look at their domestic manufacturing capabilities. Previously, they appeared to let those industries sink away and be replaced by service-driven um, industries. In the US, we saw most of that manufacturing go to China, uh, particularly from the, the Midwest or the, the, the Rust Belt um, areas. Um, and in return for that, what the US got very good at was innovation and, and uh, invention and controlling patents and research around that. Um, I think now governments will be much more focused on maintaining an element of domestic production inside their borders um, and capability that allows them to turn that on when, when they have an environment whereby uh, a pandemic or something like that does affect their global supply chains. Okay, thanks. Um, I guess, you know, talking about this whole last few months and the dynamics of uh, manufacturing and the way that organisations have needed to pivot and uh, be doing different things than what they would normally do, not just from a pure manufacturing perspective, but also the way that they, they're managing, the way that they're managing and handling uh, labour and their, and their talent, uh, talent pools and what have you. Um, apart from being completely shut down, when organisations are operating, and we definitely are looking forward to more organisations coming back up and kick-starting again, um, we look at the healthcare supply chains. Um, there's been a lot of diversification of what's needed to happen there. Um, we've seen previously well-established rules broken. We've seen India taking down uh, all of the uh, all of the rules and making massive exemptions to distribute a whole range of uh, drugs in their healthcare system to all around the world. And I see they've been promoting that on LinkedIn recently. It's quite staggering the amount of product that they've been shipping out to different parts around the world. But if we come back to health healthcare supply chains, um, do you think that some of the dynamics and the pivoting that's needed to take place uh, during this uh, pandemic will stick around? Do you think that the some of the changes will, will stay for, for long term? Or are these just an aberration? These are just short term changes that have yeah. taken place? Really, really interesting topic you pose, um, just how much of that will, will, will last and be filling. But I think history teaches us that out of those short term measures, um, we do see changes that lead, lead for decades, as I said at the very start of this conversation. Um, you know, if you look at our modern supply chains, and healthcare is a very good example, I mean, they've become increasingly more uh, interconnected and through that have become increasingly more complex. Um, goods often have to pass through multiple stages before reaching the end consumer. Um, and, you know, one of the things that with things like, you know, national lockdowns and borders closed, um, you know, COVID-19 created a set of circumstances that really disrupted all the mechanisms by which um, individuals, consumers, um, but governments also uh, you know, received their goods or were able to source their goods from. Um, and food and medicine was one of the, you know, the categories that was most heavily affected by that. And yet it was the most important ones for governments and for uh, organisations to sustain, uh, given that you know, 
they were going through border control um, mechanisms to shut their borders down and they had a, a hungry population to feed and medicines to keep the healthcare system running. Um, I think the interesting thing that we, we forget is that, you know, if you look just at medical pharmaceuticals, you know, APIs as they're referred to are active pharmaceutical ingredients. Um, you know, one of the spotlights that got sh shone on that is India is a large producer of genetic medicines, as you just referred to in your earlier comments. But 70% of the raw material for those uh, genetics produced in India comes from China. 30% or one third of that comes from the Hubei province, which is originally where the outbreak occurred. And so when you suddenly turn off that supply, it does leave those downstream manufacturing pieces, those interconnected parts of our supply chain, incredibly exposed. And I think one of, one of the things we've seen is that governments will now look at that much more closely uh, to determine whether that is in fact a sustainable model to going forward. Uh, we've seen, you know, and you just mentioned about India opening up its, uh, its trade limitations on what it can and can't export and the volumes by which it can. Um, I, I'm very certain that governments will be looking at more cooperative ways to be able to ensure that globally we have the right inventory placed in the right locations uh, in order to satisfy the global demand. Uh, because if you look back on the last few weeks, we've seen an incredible scramble for lollies as countries grab whatever PPE equipment or COVID testing equipment they can to secure the supplies that are necessary to sustain their healthcare systems. Um, and much of that has left us very exposed to faulty goods, to uh, equipment that's been manufactured, um, I won't necessarily say badly manufactured, but equipment that has been led to higher failure rates than, than perhaps equipment that's gone through more quality control checks. And I think when on reflection, we will see a much different supply chain from the healthcare sector coming out of this with much more scrutiny on where we manufacture, what the quality looks like, how much inventory we hold, uh, how much domestic R&D we do to ensure we've got capability in that area. Um, and I think we're starting to see that now. Governments have already announced that they are looking to you know, develop additional manufacturing hubs or zones to satisfy key industries. Yeah. Yeah, good one. So, talking about that has, has raised the issue in my mind. If we, if those macro issues, mm. if we go to more uh, look at the micro elements of uh, manufacturing in the supply chain, we've talked previously on the series about um, remote workforces, of course, um, and the distributed nature of talent and of input. Uh, not only from a human perspective, but also from a, um, uh, an artificial intelligence or automation uh, perspective. Um, if you, do you think we're seeing uh, any effects of that remote element of, of workforces and, and information and uh, affecting the way manufacturing will be uh, done in the future? I mean, obviously, there's, there's been some real restrictions around um, having very many people in, in, in the same place. So with the social distancing, um, has that had an, had an impact that you've seen on manufacturing? Are there, are there going to be new norms there? Uh, or will things just go back to the way they were before? 
Uh, I mean, let me let me just tackle the the subject of because there's a couple of questions in that. There's the question of our, our workforce, and there's a question of, of data and digitization and visibility. Um, you know, I think if we, if we tackle the data visibility one, I think one of the interesting things you know that shone the light on this was you know governments and multinationals really were seeking better insights into what their complexity in their supply chain looked like as they needed to respond to critical goods to uh, you know to supply their markets and being put under some pressure in order to do so both from the consumer but also in terms of availability but also in terms of governments for things like food security or healthcare uh, pharmaceutical security um, and that those those insights um, that were being sought really as digital tools that you know help provide that better um, visibility that better data um, the better collaboration elements that allow them to be able to better understand and make more informed decisions. Um, and that's not within their own supply chain, but it's across their base of suppliers, uh, their raw material feedstock uh, avenues. Um, and obviously, you know, that's what drives our supply chain. So if you think about data infrastructure um, within manufacturing, we've had a lot of move towards IoT in recent years as, as machines have become smarter. And we've learned more around AI to adopt um, you know, good examples of preventative maintenance, uh, where machines will now indicate to us their maintenance cycles as opposed to us with the clipboard and the paper uh, recording that. Um, so you have to wonder whether data infrastructure inside manufacturing supply chain now, now moves from being an operational necessity to being a strategic asset for an organization. Because the moment it becomes a, a strategic asset, it tends to be looked at differently when things like business cases for investment are concerned. Um, it seems it's more protected uh, within the organization in terms of the principles of what it does as part of a pillar through our business, as opposed to being just a tool that helps us run our business more effectively. And if you take that conversation a step further, it almost advances the, the need for a faster rollout of things like 5G networks, um, to enable that sort of technology to become effective. Um, if we go back to your second question, which was on the remote working, um, absolutely, I think you know we're going to see much more regulation, at least in the short term, around social distancing. And if you translate that to our warehouse floors or to our, our manufacturing production lines, um, you know we, we often uh, are very cramped in terms of our environment. Our line operators who have a physical necessity to be at those machines operating them are normally in close proximity to one another. Um, or the social distancing, that may in fact become more challenging. So what does that mean? Um, and, and you know, there, there's gonna become a, a little bit of a, a trend towards seeing the decoupling of some roles from that shift operation, and they will be stationed remotely away from the physical machine. Whereas previously, they may have been sitting right on top of that. And it will now be the only essential operator there. Now, as those measures are put in place, the only enabler becomes digitization. It becomes the major tool by which allows our workforce to collaborate at a production level uh, and to be as efficient as they would if they had a full shift operation. So the whole concept of virtual shifts now becomes a topic that can be underpinned through the use of technology. And I think we're gonna see increasingly more manufacturers need to look at that through necessity because of these social distances and other, other restrictions that are, that are a vital necessity in order to control a pandemic of this nature. You, uh, you talked a little bit earlier about um, 
the uh, the cross-border factors, um, decentralisation. Um, I guess referring to the fact of the need, as a result of what's happened with the pandemic, of the need to to firm up and decentralise supply chains, especially around manufacturing, to ensure um, security of, of product, in particular uh, food security. Um, we don't think we've seen massive food shortages too many places in the world at this stage. We've seen a lot of supermarket shelves get very empty very quickly of certain products. Um, you know, arguably not a, a critical issue. But if we talk about general goods for the wider manufacturing sector, we all know that you know there's been a massive centralisation into certain Asian countries, in particular. Uh, with China, um, and that really that has caused some issues in regards to supply, not only of things like PPE, um, but other essential goods and, and parts of uh, machinery and for various other elements um, of processes of products around the world. Do you know? Do you think we're looking now at two parts of the question? Do you think we're really looking now at a major decentralisation. I mean, we can talk, you know, about Zara ten years ago being famous for its its decentralised manufacturing and getting fashion fashion into stores days after uh, product was uh, displayed on on Milan or New York or London catwalks. And why Zara has become so uh, successful in the retail sector. I know retailers is doing it really really hard worldwide at the moment, but uh, especially fashion. But do you see uh, that move to uh, decentralisation really taking place, or are we going to go back to the same old, same old and have centralised um, manufacturing? Or, and if we are going to see that decentralisation, given the costs of doing that for most organisations and most countries and governments, um, do you see that being private sector managed? Do you see it being managed by governments? Um, or do you see it as being a combination of both? Yeah, I think it's probably the latter, the, the combination of both. Um, so I think if we look at things like food security uh, coming out of this, and although largely our manufacturers and our wholesalers and our, our retailers did a wonderful job of you know, keeping the stock, the, the shelves full, um, and of course having to adopt things like home delivery and uh, other mechanisms in order to keep us satisfied, um, I think coming out of this, governments will no doubtably be looking at food security as a major issue. Um, it's you know they'll be looking at well what did we do well, uh, what can we take away from this, what can we learn, what do we not do so well, and, and what do we need to do in future to ensure that we are uh, operating a, a very robust, stable environment. Now, if you look here at the UAE, um, traditionally very heavily dependent upon imports of perishable products. Um, over the last few years, they've invested very heavily uh, with private enterprise uh, and with other government-sponsored programs to ensure that they are um, moving away from the dependency of imported food to be able to have a more sustainable domestic production environment. And a good example of that is tomatoes. You know, the UAE was never known as a major tomato producer here in the desert, but you know, vertical farming and other investments in technology, both private and public, uh, enabled the creation of an industry around that. And we're seeing, as we go into our supermarkets now, 
more and more locally grown produce. Now, at some point in time, governments will think about, well, how does that, uh, how do I support that to make it more sustainable and perhaps now turn that into a sector that I can, I can use to grow my export produce. Um, so food security is definitely going to be a high agenda item coming out of this. Um, and investment will be, I believe, it'll be focused on both public and private, to be honest with you. Okay. I mean, I guess talking about food security and uh, and food, I mean, I've been working a lot in the last uh, couple of years with some major exporters in Australia, um, my regular trips uh, through Melbourne in particular. And uh, I, I noticed that uh, the Australian government recently has uh, put in place a major initiative. I don't know what they call it, but it's to uh, it's to support capacity, especially air freight, to support the the massive food bowl that Australia is, uh, most of which came to a streaming halt uh, a few months ago uh, with all of the exports, whether it be uh, crayfish, fish in particular, um, much of which is live up into Asia and China in particular and the rest of the world, uh, fruit produce, of course, during the summer up into this part of the world and other parts of the world. Um, that's been a major hit to the Australian economy. So what the government there has done recently, it has put together a think tank, uh, a working group, headed up, I think, by uh, by Michael Byrne, the ex-CEO uh, from uh, Linfox and latterly Toll, um, and uh, they're driving a process to support the major air freighters, the exporters, companies like CT Freight, who are probably the biggest Perishables exporter out of Australia, uh, Schenker, DHL, uh, and Nagel and all the other big uh, integrators, the biggest biggest players, are all on this group. And the government is pouring uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, as far as I'm aware, into providing capacity so that the Australian food export uh, sector can get back up and running again. Um, what are you seeing around other parts of the world? Uh, you've got a lot of connections in the aviation space, air cargo in particular. Um, what are you seeing in terms of incentives? I know we're seeing a lot of passenger aircraft uh, turning into cargo aircraft. What are some of the major initiatives and what are some of the upsides moving forward? Yeah. Great moving. Yeah, I think if we, if we look back in history, I think you know, one of the things that the last major financial crisis taught us in 2008 to 2010 um, was the need for immediate stimulation uh, of economies as you come out of this. It's, it's, you can't just rely on... on uh, consumers and businesses to drag you out of that. And I think it's been encouraging to see that in, in countries like the UAE, like Australia, uh, and like the US just recently and, and uh, the UK, is that governments have been very quick to ensure that you know, small, medium and large-sized businesses have the financial resources to uh, persevere through these, these difficult times. For a lot of companies, their cash flow has been affected. Um, and as you rightly point to, for those uh, organizations that are uh, export producers, um, the stopping of, of passenger aircraft, which is a major share of our, our air cargo capacity, um, has affected their ability to supply markets. Um, and I think it's, you know, I, I do have a bit of a smile. I, I, I go back to you know, my distant history and the repurposing of, of, you know, passenger aircraft into freighters, as we now see with many airlines doing that, Emirates, Lufthansa, uh, we see Air New Zealand have done it, Qantas are doing it. All around the world, we're seeing airlines repurpose their fleet for cargo. 
Um, you know, I remember back in the mid 2000s, we were running, you know, seven six sevens, carrying just you know newspapers and, and mail in the evenings in order for vital supply chains to to continue. And then during the day, we fly them as as passenger aircraft. Now, ultimately, that's that that's that's stopped because it's difficult for the maintenance guys to get their hands for line maintenance on the aircraft, and it's been operated to a, a very full schedule. Um, but you know, one of the things we did see was airlines respond very quickly and repurpose their fleets. Now, coming out of COVID-19, um, I think we're going to have to have a close look at just where capacity is needed. Uh, will we see the emergence of the you know, the mainline freighters again um, or more freighter, main deck freighters in the market? I don't know. But I, I certainly think airlines will see now a greater value in cargo. There'll be a greater demand for that capacity for strategic items such as healthcare and food. I think more importantly, we'll start to see a focus on investing in that area. So, uh, but right now we've got you know still a number of weeks and months ahead of ourselves to get through that. Um, and I think the airlines that are repurposing their fleet are doing a great job. Um, and every day we see more and more announcements of, of additional cargo capacity coming onto market to help those exporters get to get to market. But there's no doubt about it that the supply chain is going to look completely different post-COVID-19 than it did before. And and it's no different that we're going to adopt new technologies and new capacity. Uh, Even if in simple things, you look at what Dubai Customs has done to digitize uh, or speed up its digitization process, already a relatively digitized environment, but they put new practices in order to fast track pharmaceutical and food stocks into the country with the you know, the least amount of human intervention possible. So those are some of the things that I think we'll see come out of this this uh, latest crisis. Cool. So just to, to maybe to finish up then, you talked about various elements of manufacturing and, and the supply chain itself. Um, what's, what's your take on what's happened with Last Mile? I mean, leading, leading up to the end of 2019, the, the carnage around last mile and the amount of entrepreneurial, you know, fantastic companies that had really looked to master the last mile part of the supply chain, the downstream supply chain. Uh, the carnage was extreme. There many yeah. more companies have failed than had succeeded. It's been a talking point at many of the conferences that we've held and been involved in over the last few years. Um, what we're seeing now globally is this massive uptick, of course, in e-commerce, uh, ordering not only goods but uh, sustenance and food uh, online. There are massive, there are millions of motorbikes running around Deliveroo and Aramex and uh, everybody else in between all around the world um, delivering uh, goods and, and services. Um, has this meant a, a real kick up for and kick on for the last mile providers, many of whom were struggling? Uh, and has this meant and as the e-commerce uh, boom during and uh, ordering from home and lockdown uh, for all sorts of goods and services meant that uh, e-commerce has taken a leap forward. What are you seeing happening? Yeah, well, I mean, look, e-commerce has been a success growth story, as we all know, over the last you know, 10 years. And we've, we've seen it in Asia, we've seen it in the US, we've seen it here in the Middle East. And, of course, Africa is now going through its, its e-commerce boom as we, we sort of unlock uh, the cross-border e-commerce and enabling consumers to buy online and receive their goods. 
the last mile piece has always been a little bit challenging, hasn't it, to, to make money? I think as you've just indicated, a lot of last mile uh, first movers really struggle with that balance between volume and price and their need to invest in assets to sustain a network. And so that's always been a bit of a challenge for them. Um, but I think the big story to come out of this uh, for e-commerce has been, you know, anybody that any retailer or wholesaler that was slow to embrace a digital sales platform or had, had you know was reluctant to invest the cost of that or to, to move themselves into a to an online sales channel and through an omni-channel environment, um, I think they've had to now embrace that very um, as we is there's plenty of technology now available um, that the barriers of entry are much greatly reduced on organisations to have a virtual online presence. Um, your supply chains are largely plug and play. The logistics providers uh, have really worked closely with your digital cousins to ensure the connectivity between platforms and marketplaces and the, and the physical logistics providers. And so, um, so we've, we've sort of broken that barrier down. If you were slow to move to that environment, then you just weren't in the game and your revenue, if you're bricks and mortar, your revenue turned off as the doors got closed on you. Um, so I think that's been a major shift. And I think what we'll see is an acceleration of those brand owners and retailers and wholesalers moving towards anyone that was slow to the party is now playing catch up and will have to get there through necessity, just purely to have an alternative channel uh, for them to trade. The second part of that, of course, is the, the last mile connectivity. We found, all of us found ourselves, um, it was no longer an option to pop down to the store and to, to get the item. So if we really wanted it, we had to move to a, to an online sales portal, necessitated a need for delivery. Um, so if we were technology reluctant or we were distrustful of online Shopping through maybe it's through product integrity, maybe it's through the payment channels, maybe it's just purely through the convenience of being able to pop to the store and get it. Actually, we had to now embrace that, um, particularly in the case of things like food and, and online groceries, which was always one of those categories that people were slow to adopt. And a rule they put, pick the freshest goods. Will I get it this conveniently or at the same time, given I don't, you know, I'm not always going to be at home when the delivery guy comes? Um, but you know, this experience has broken that down. We've we've had to embrace that pretty promptly. And I, I don't know anybody in my circle that um, you know hasn't bought groceries online in the, the recent weeks purely out of necessity because of our, our situation with not being able to move around or the difficulty of getting permits. Um, and so those two elements for me are really interesting in e-commerce. You know, your, your, your retailers having to adopt digital channels. Your, your consumers, your reluctant consumers now moving towards that. And, of course, what that does is once you buy and you invariably gain confidence in that online channel. And so if your confidence grows, you're more likely to shop more frequently or more greater online once things return back to normal. In other words, you're less likely to return to the store and more likely to, to shop online. So I think that's been a winner for the last mile. Um, I think it's been interesting to see Industries that have traditionally not been last mile uh, carriers, um, and I'll use the taxis for example. We saw the taxis here uh, in the UAE repurposed as delivery vehicles because they simply didn't have any passengers and they were an available uh, asset that could in fact service home deliveries. So I think we're now going to see this, this more of a uh, 
a virtual look at how we consolidate our assets across the channels of passenger delivery and other modes um, to enable that. And I do think we're going to see a continuing rise in, in e-commerce, but it's not going to be because of that, you know, the, the phenomenal um, adoption of e-commerce. It's going to be because people are going to be comfortable shopping for their groceries online or other commodities. And retailers that buy from today, you'll be able to buy from quite normally. Okay. So those are those are two major shifts I see. And whether that's enough to get the the big, you know, the new entrance into the last mile, enough volume through the the right price to break even and make money, um, one can only hope so. Okay, well, good one. Thanks for that, and thanks for sharing those insights. Um, always good to get your input and uh, what you're seeing in the marketplace and customers you're talking to, and, uh, and not the least of which is all the media that's floating around to, to yeah. share information with us as well. So look, uh, everybody, thank you, thank you, Daryl, and thank you, everybody else, for, for joining this uh, Logistics Executive Group podcast. Um, as I say, it's our intention to bring many of the world's top executives, entrepreneurs, companies, uh, not only just in the supply chain and logistics space, but right across global markets, trends and innovations as we move forward into, into brighter days, I guess. So without further ado, uh, thank you all again, um, and look, please stay safe. Keep a distance and uh, be well, everybody. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.